police are investigating Lauren Boebert on charges of domestic violence, and this time it's serious, and it could spell the end of her political career. Boebert's seat became a toss-up, and she's now running in a different district. She's up against stiff competition in the primaries. There's no guarantee she's going to get the nomination. And now, as of this morning, it looks doubtful. It's serious. Later on today's program, I write Lauren Boebert's political obituary. This time, I think it went too far. The chairman of the Florida Republican Party is out. Christian Ziegler, who has been accused of rape and video voyeurism, was ordered to step down as chairman of Florida's Republican Party after a vote was taken at an emergency session in Tallahassee on Monday. It was a voice vote, and those in attendance say very few expressed support for Ziegler, whose wife, Bridget Ziegler, was forced to step down as one of the leaders of Moms for Liberty after she admitted to partaking in at least one threesome with her husband, and the woman accusing him of rape. Bridget Ziegler was asked to resign from her role on the Sarasota School Board, but she refused. Bridget Ziegler, despite admitting to bisexual activity, has been an outspoken outspoken critic, along with her husband, of Florida's LGBTQ community. She was instrumental in the passage last year of Florida's Don't Say Gay Bill, along with other laws that persecute transgender students. Last year, the largest LGBTQ lobbying organization in America issued a travel advisory for the state of Florida, warning members of the LGBTQ community that it is not safe to visit Florida. News broke last month that the woman who Christian Ziegler has known for 20 years is now telling police he raped her. Ziegler reportedly handed over cell phone video to prove the sex was consensual. But police say they are now looking into charging Ziegler with video voyeurism since the woman claims she had no idea she was being filmed. Donald Trump's civil lawsuit filed by journalist E. Jean Carroll begins a week from today. Last year, E. Jean Carroll won a defamation lawsuit after a jury concluded that she was entitled to damages after Donald Trump raped her and then defamed her. Right after the $5 million verdict, Trump appeared on a CNN town hall where he continued to defame E. Jean Carroll. So her lawyers then filed another defamation lawsuit, and that is the one that begins next week. The judge in the first trial is the same judge as the one in the second trial, and he has been very adamant in reminding Trump, his attorneys, and anyone willing to listen that the jury last year did in fact find Donald Trump guilty of rape. On Monday, lawyers for Donald Trump filed a motion to strike the word rape from next week's trial and not allow the jury to be informed that the previous jury found Donald Trump guilty of rape. Now, this trial is not about whether or not Donald Trump raped E. Jean Carroll. This trial is to determine the damages 
And the judge, for the third time since the verdict came down, wrote that a jury last year concluded that under common law parlance, Donald Trump did in fact rape E. Jean Carroll. Over the weekend, the Trump campaign began running a television ad in Iowa insisting Trump was chosen by God to be president. Not only that, it's also a complete ripoff of a Ron DeSantis ad from last year claiming God chose Ron DeSantis to be president. I'm starting to believe God is a Hollywood a-hole. Love you, babe. You're the best. You got the part, I swear. No more auditions. Just wait by the phone. I'm calling your agent. You nailed the audition. Which one is it, God? DeSantis or Trump, you phony? The New York Post is reporting tonight that the newly unsealed documents in a civil lawsuit filed against Ghislaine Maxwell, Jeffrey Epstein's girlfriend, these new files suggest that before becoming president, Donald Trump was a frequent guest inside Jeffrey Epstein's New York City mansion, where he is reported to have had sex several times. Now, to be fair, Jeffrey Epstein is a psychopath, or was a psychopath, and a liar, and he liked people to believe he had tapes on them. So, as of now, there are no tapes to be found, and there is a distinct possibility that the witnesses who spoke of Trump and these tapes was doing so on orders from Jeffrey Epstein. But since we're talking about Donald Trump, it's what people are saying. It's what I've heard. I don't know if Donald Trump had sex inside Jeffrey Epstein's New York City mansion on numerous occasions. In fact, I hope it's not true. I like to think it's not true, but according to newly unsealed documents, that's what people are saying. That's what I've heard. Who knows? You know, someone should look into it. Again, I hope it's not true, but it wouldn't surprise me. What do you think? See how it works? I don't know if it's true. It's what people are saying. But here's what is true. This. So maybe the reports about the tapes have been discredited. Maybe they haven't been discredited. But Trump knew Jeffrey Epstein. He used to eat. We know he ate at his mansion in Florida. He also knew Jeffrey Epstein. He knew of Jeffrey Epstein. And when he became a a president of the United States, he appointed this guy, Alexander Acosta, as U.S. Labor Secretary. If you remember, Alexander Costa was the federal prosecutor who cut a deal with Jeffrey Epstein back in 2008. To refresh your memory, the FBI put together a 55-page indictment for Epstein involving 30, 30 underage victims. Acosta, the U.S. attorney at the time down in Florida, shut the investigation down after Acosta worked out a deal with Epstein's lawyers for Epstein to plead guilty to lesser state charges of soliciting prostitutes, not underage women. Epstein pretty much ended up serving out his sentence under house arrest. He really didn't have to go to jail. Trump caved into pressure from Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi when this was revealed that Acosta made the sweetheart deal. They said Acosta had to resign as Secretary of Labor, and he went. 
but not before proposing an 80% cut in the Department of Labor's agency that combats child sex trafficking. Hey, who was the lawyer that worked out this deal between Acosta and uh, Jeffrey Epstein? Ken Starr. Ken Starr worked it out. He was the same Ken Starr who prosecuted Bill Clinton for lying under oath about oral sex. And then in 2020, was part of Donald Trump's defense team for the first impeachment. According to Judy Hirschman, a lawyer who wrote back in 2021 that she had an affair with Ken Starr, Starr asked her for some help on the Epstein case. When she expressed concern about the allegations, Ken Starr reportedly told her that Epstein was a good guy who promised him, once this is over, he'll keep it above 18 from now on. Unquote. Ken Starr told his alleged mistress, come work on this case with me. Jeffrey Epstein promised, quote, he'll keep it above 18 from now on. Like it was a ticket for driving too slowly. Yeah, his foot was light on the pedal, but he promised me from now on he'll keep it above 18 from now on. He just needs to step on the gas. He's, he's learned his lesson. What a forgiving guy Ken Starr is. I Google Judy Hirschman and Medium. She wrote this on Medium about her affair with Ken Starr and some disturbing revelations about Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. I don't have time to get into that, but Google Judy Hirschman and slash Medium. She wrote the report on Medium. Ken Starr, before dying, as I said, served as Donald Trump's defense attorney in the first impeachment, along with Alan Dershowitz. Alan Dershowitz defended Donald Trump in the first impeachment, where Dershowitz famously said, quote, if the president does something to get reelected, then it's not illegal. Dershowitz was named 150 times in the newly unsealed Jeffrey Epstein documents. He's also the author of this 1997 legal chestnut entitled Statutory Rape is an Outdated Concept. ABC is reporting that special counsel Jack Smith has gotten Donald Trump's communications guru Dan Scavino to testify that he was in the White House on January 6th, and that he and several other staffers begged Donald Trump to do something to stop the insurrection, but Trump just sat there with his arms folded, watching his television, refusing to say or do anything until moments later when Trump took to Twitter and blamed Mike Pence for not doing the right thing. Scavino, according to ABC News, is prepared to testify that after being told the Capitol was under siege, Trump's response was basically, let it burn, unquote. ABC also reports that another Trump aide, Nick Luna, is prepared to testify that when he told Trump that Mike Pence had to be moved to a secure location in the middle of the insurrection, Trump responded, so what? More and more reports coming out of the special counsel's office suggest that between Trump's White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows, turning state's evidence and testimony from several other unindicted co-conspirators, it will be next to impossible for a jury not to convict 
Donald Trump in Washington, D.C., which might explain why Jack Smith was the victim of a swatting on Sunday night. Police were called to his house after someone called in a phony, anonymous report of a gunman holding people hostage inside Smith's home. This is what's going on. Trump supporters are swatting anybody who goes after Donald Trump. It also explains why over the weekend the presiding judge in that trial, Tanya Chutkin, was also the victim of a swatting. One third of the special counsel's budget is spent on security for Jack Smith, his staff, and witnesses. One third of his budget. More is being spent on round-the-clock protection for Judge Chutkin, as well as potential witnesses, and eventually they'll have to provide security for jurors and the court staff. We know what's going on in Fulton County. We know that Fawny Willis and her entire staff has round-the-clock security. This is exactly what fascism looks like. Election workers, members of Congress, prosecutors, judges, jurors, and witnesses are inundated by death threats. And all this fascist pig Donald Trump can say is, you know, if I'm indicted, if I lose the election, if the Supreme Court rules against me, I can't control how my supporters respond. Instead of saying to his supporters, knock it off, he says, proud boys, Stand back and stand by. Stand by. On the campaign trail, he is now calling the hundreds of January Sixers behind bars hostages. He says he loves them. He says he loves the people who stormed the Capitol. He refers to them now as great patriots. In Iowa, over the weekend, Donald Trump said, quote, I call them hostages. Some people call them prisoners. I call them hostages. Release the J6 hostages, Joe. Joe Biden. Release them, Joe. You can do it. Real easy, Joe. And it's not just crackpots like Paul Gosar of Arizona or Marjorie Taylor Greene calling them hostages. Elise Stefanik, the Harvard-educated wife of a gun lobbyist, part of the Republican leadership in the House, referred to the people arrested for their role on January 6th as hostages too on Meet the Press Sunday. She referred to them as hostages. Steve Scalise, the majority leader, can't bring himself to say Joe Biden was legitimately elected. On Face the Nation Sunday, the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, self-righteously took umbrage, was insulted when asked if he was still an election denier. An election denier? Of course I'm not, he said, but then refused to admit that Joe Biden won in 2020. Trump owns the House Republican Caucus. So far, according to the New York Times, he has secured endorsements from 100 Republican members of the House. Nikki Haley has zero. Ron DeSantis, who served in the House, only has five members endorsing him. One of them is Chip Roy, who, with Ken Buck, was the only member of the Freedom Caucus to certify the election for Joe Biden. Uh, So to Chip Roy's credit, he certified the election for Joe Biden in 2020, and 
He's endorsed Ron DeSantis, who is even worse than Donald Trump. Well, Alan Dershowitz pretty much said during the first Trump impeachment that if the president does something to get reelected, it's not illegal. Trump is now insisting he has something called presidential immunity. He and his lawyers are now claiming that the president of the United States cannot be charged after he leaves office for any crimes he may or may not have committed while he was president. Now, we know this is simply not true. When Trump's lawyers in the election interference case filed a motion to dismiss the charges based on presidential immunity, Judge Tanya Chutkin, who was just swatted, threw out the motion because it's ridiculous. Former presidents can be charged with crimes after they leave office for crimes they committed while they were in office. In fact, there are no laws preventing a sitting president uh, from being charged with a crime while he is in office for a crime he committed while in office. The only reason Robert Mueller didn't recommend an indictment in the Mueller report was it's only the official policy of our Justice Department not to indict a sitting president. It's a norm. It's not a law. It's a norm. In 1973, the Office of Legal Legal Counsel inside the Justice Department prepared a memorandum that has become official policy for the Justice Department, and that policy is a sitting president cannot be indicted for crimes he committed while he was president. Everyone else in the executive branch, according to this memorandum, may be indicted, including the vice president, and that happened to Sparrow Agnew in 73 when that memorandum was written. Nixon's vice president uh, had to resign, and he famously pleaded no low contendere to a, uh, a bribery case. No low contendere means no contest. It's a fancy way for saying guilty. The Office of Legal Counsel, in their memo, in their 1973 memo, says that if Congress impeaches the president, removes him from office, if the Senate votes to remove him from office, then the Department of Justice can immediately indict him as an ex-president. So in that memorandum, the Office of Legal Counsel said, you can't indict a sitting president. It's not against the law. It's just our policy. But you can indict an ex-president. If you remember... Trump's lawyers, wanting to delay this March trial, appealed Judge Chutkin's ruling. Judge Chutkin, the one who was swatted over the weekend, she threw out the presidential immunity motion, and his lawyers are appealing, hoping to slow the process down until after the November election, when presumably Donald Trump could do what Nixon did with Archibald Cox and fire Jack Smith. Smith filed a motion with the Supreme Court in December to expedite their ruling, asking for permission to leapfrog over the appeals courts to get a ruling so the trial could remain on schedule. The Supreme Court said no, the question of presidential immunity must go through the regular appeals process. Really? The Supreme Court doesn't uh, know about presidential immunity. They want to hear the arguments in the lower courts. 
Well, on Tuesday, today, the circuit court in Washington, D.C. begins hearing Trump's ridiculous argument for presidential immunity, his ridiculous argument that the president of the United States can do whatever he wants and never be charged with a crime. Now, if the Supreme Court, and you never know, rules that there is such a thing as presidential immunity, this would be tantamount to Germany's Enabling Act in 1933 that gave Hitler untrammeled power. If there's such a thing as presidential immunity, it's over. And you got to remember, there are people like Bill Barr who believe in the unitary executive theory, which means they believe the president holds unlimited power over the entire executive branch with no judicial checks. In other words, the Justice Department works for the president, and he's immune. He is pretty much king for four years or eight years. Trump announced that he will be in D.C. attending the hearing today. That's uh, less than a week before the Iowa caucuses. Trump is going to sit in a courtroom and listen to the argument. Why? The same reason Judge Tanya Chutkin and Jack Smith got swatted over the weekend. This is Trump eyeballing the judges to let them know he knows who they are and where they live. The only reason he's going to be there today is to intimidate. The two legal precedents to watch in all this are Nixon versus Fitzgerald and Clinton versus Jones. I'll start off with Clinton versus Jones. Paula Jones filed a sexual harassment suit against President Clinton, claiming that he sexually harassed her when he was the governor of Arkansas. He claims he exposed himself in a hotel room. She claims he exposed himself in a hotel room and asked her to pleasure him. She filed the lawsuit while Clinton was president of the United States. The lawsuit was funded by the vast right-wing conspiracy that wanted to remove Clinton from office by any means necessary. Well, the president went to the Supreme Court and said, I shouldn't have to sit for a civil lawsuit. I got more important things to do. But the Supreme Court issued a narrow ruling saying that a sitting president can't be tried in a civil court for damages he committed while he was president. The court ruled, however, that a sitting president can be tried in a civil court for damages he committed before he became president. Paula Jones accused him of harassing her while Clinton was governor before he was president. So the Supreme Court ruled that Clinton could be deposed while he was president. He could be deposed by Paula Jones's attorneys. Now, at the time, Ken Starr, remember him? He was the independent or the special prosecutor. I always get those confused. But he was the prosecutor looking, I think it was the independent prosecutor. I think that's what they call them. We don't have them anymore, but uh, he was the independent prosecutor looking into, let me know in the comments, is it special prosecutor or independent prosecutor? I'm going to bet that it's independent prosecutor, but they don't have them anymore. Uh, Ken Starr at the time was the prosecutor. He was Archibald Cox looking into the Whitewater scandal, which was nothing. But 
you know, he had nothing. He, had, he was spending tens of millions of dollars. He had nothing. He poured over Hillary Clinton's billing records at the Rose Law Firm in Arkansas, found nothing. He had nothing. He was empty. However, Ken Starr knew Paula Jones's attorneys. They were all part of the same conspiracy. And when Linda Tripp, Monica Lewinsky's friend, told Ken Starr that Clinton was carrying on with Monica in the Oval Office, which was perfectly legal, Ken Starr decided to set up a sting operation. He told Paula Jones's lawyers, hey, you're going to depose Bill Clinton. Why don't you ask Clinton about Monica Lewinsky during the Paula Jones deposition? Well, he set up a sting. And Clinton was asked about having sexual relations with Monica Lewinsky, and he denied it. And he was busted. It was a sting operation. They had nothing on Bill Clinton, so Ken Starr forced him into committing a crime. It was a honeypot to get him to lie under oath about sex with Monica Lewinsky. And everything stopped in this country for two years. Clinton was removed. Clinton was impeached, not removed from office. So that's uh, Jones versus Clinton or Clinton v. Jones. You'll be hearing a lot about that today. The other legal precedent is Nixon versus Fitzgerald. In 1982, what would that be? Eight years? 74 four, six, and two, eight years after Nixon resigned, the Supreme Court ruled that a, uh, I'm going quickly here, uh, the Supreme Court ruled that a president is entitled to absolute legal immunity when it comes to civil liabilities for actions committed during his term, <clears throat> during his term in office, right? You, you cannot sue a president in civil court for anything he did, he has absolute immunity. You, you cannot take him to civil court uh, for anything he did to you while he was president. But the Supreme Court in, Fitch, in Nixon versus Fitzgerald not only ruled, but emphasized, if you read the ruling, that the president is not immune from criminal liability for authorized or unauthorized acts as president. Let me repeat this, because I know I'm going quickly. How are we doing on time here? Okay. In Nixon v. Fitzgerald, the Supreme Court in 1982 ruled and emphasized the president is not immune from criminal liability for authorized or unauthorized acts as president. Now, eventually the Supreme Court is going to have to take this case. And I have no doubt that the circuit court in D.C., which there's a three-judge panel that is hearing the case starting today, I have no doubt they're going to cite Nixon versus Fitzgerald, and they're going to let stand Judge Tanya Chutkin's ruling that there is no such thing as presidential immunity from criminal, criminal prosecution after a president leaves office. Now, when it goes to the Supreme Court, they're going to have to do one of two things. Either uphold the lower court's ruling in favor of Judge Chutkin, 
or they're going to have to overturn Nixon v. Fitzgerald the same way they overturned Roe v. Wade. And if they overturn Nixon v. Fitzgerald, that's all she wrote. That's all she wrote. It's the Enabling Act. Say goodbye to democracy. Trump's lawyers in the Georgia RICO trial filed a motion to have those indictments thrown out on Monday. They're also citing presidential immunity. Once again, the real intent there is to start an appeals process that delays the Georgia trial until after the presidential election. And then, after the presidential election, assuming Trump wins, the Supreme Court will have to decide if a sitting president can be tried for a crime he committed during his first term, blah, 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 blah. On Sunday, Trump warned that if he's not granted presidential immunity for what he did while president, he warned that when I get back into the Oval Office, I will criminally prosecute Joe Biden for the crimes he committed as president. And what are those crimes that Joe Biden committed? Uh, Allowing the migrants to come over the border? Really? You mean the same exact crime Donald Trump was guilty of when he was president. Like I said earlier, the Iowa caucuses are less than a week from this morning. What's amazing is so far we're not seeing any polling to suggest Trump is in any trouble with Republicans in Iowa or New Hampshire. Now, I just refuse to believe these polls. Iowa is next Monday. They're expecting a blizzard and below freezing conditions that day. So it could mean Trump supporters will stay home because they figure it's a lock. Why bother? He's going to win. Unless this Trump infection is so intense, nothing is going to stop these people from turning out for Mein Fuhrer. We should see new polling this week that could suggest some shift, but it would be have to be like the tectonic plates shifting. Uh, it's I I've been waiting. This is when it, you you know uh, it's not likely. I've been saying DeSantis is going to win Iowa. Right now, uh, my head says Trump wins. My gut says DeSantis, and my penis. All right. Um, I don't want to tell you what my penis says. It's inappropriate. I have a rude penis. Doesn't know how to behave in public. That's why I never let it talk. But my gut is telling me that DeSantis wins. My head tells me it's Trump. My heart is telling my penis to shut up. My heart and my penis... It's they don't get along. We're waiting on the big Des Moines Register poll. It will be the last major poll before the caucuses. Again, uh, nothing. Here are the real clear Iowa polling averages. Real clear Iowa averages show Trump with a majority, not a plurality. I mean, this is 51.3%. DeSantis is in second place 
with 18.6%. Haley is in third with 16.1%. But a new morning consult poll out late last night shows Haley moving into second place in Iowa. But Trump is peeling away from everyone in this poll with 58% of the vote. Again, uh, that is a poll of a little, little under 400 likely caucus goers. Okay, but these are legitimate polls. What is shocking here, not just with the morning consult poll, what is shocking with the real clear averages of all the polls is we always thought there was a ceiling in the Republican Party for Trump and that his only way was down. His only way was down. He couldn't top out past 40%. Again, this is one poll, but he's busting through the ceiling, 58%. And the averages have him at 51%. I mean, it just can't be right. He's moving above the ceiling. We were trying to establish a floor in the polling. It is the early warning signs of a wave election. Like I said before, Trump appears to be running as a, a successful incumbent. It's, it's like the, the interim period with Joe Biden doesn't exist for these Republicans. Uh, it's, it's just 2020, but... He's more popular. Uh, Here is what is so frightening. When it comes to policy, you vote DeSantis over Trump. If you're a MAGA Republican, if you're a Republican, when it comes to policy, you would vote DeSantis over Trump. If you believe all the things Donald Trump says he believes, then you should vote for Ron DeSantis Because he actually knows how to pull the levers of power and get those things done. So why Trump? Why is DeSantis in third place? Because we're talking about a cult of personality. This is what is emerging. We knew this in 2016. Trump could come out in favor right now of Medicare for all. He could announce amnesty for the migrants. He could say, let's tax the billionaires out of existence. I suspect most of the people who are going to vote for Trump in the Iowa caucuses and in New Hampshire would be all in on Trump no matter what. If Donald Trump started saying, tax the billionaires, we got to get off fossil fuels, we've got to stop drilling, the same people who are voting for Trump right now would still be voting for him because it's not about policy. Iowa's looking like Republicans believe in one thing, Donald Trump, and they don't believe in democracy. Again, I have to believe that people who don't believe in democracy don't show up to vote on election day. It's kind of kind of a catch twenty 
too, for crypto fascists. I'm hoping the polls are wrong and that people who say they're going to vote for Trump will, ah, forget it. I have no idea. I have no idea what's going to happen. And I have no idea who I want to win in Iowa or New Hampshire. I'd like to see Trump lose, not get the nomination, and watch him incinerate. But, you know, polling shows, and I don't trust this polling, that Haley would be tougher for Biden to beat. I don't believe that. I I, I think she's an idiot. And that's why she's not getting the the nomination. Uh, And either is DeSantis. It's going to be... Trump. I, I, I just wish I could. The Hill is reporting that Ron DeSantis is expected to suspend his campaign after Iowa when or if he loses Iowa uh, because there's no path forward for Ron DeSantis. He betted all on Iowa. No candidate has spent more time in Iowa than DeSantis. He's got the governor's endorsement. He's got the state's top evangelical leader's endorsement. If DeSantis has any hope of surging, it's going to be in Iowa. Not Florida. He's the governor of Florida. That's a lock for Trump. So if DeSantis can't win Iowa, he can't win anywhere, and that's all she wrote. DeSantis refuses to say anything bad about Donald Trump. But he did let slip over the weekend that if Trump loses Iowa, Trump will refuse to admit defeat. And we know that. We know that he will refuse to admit defeat. And even DeSantis is saying that. Trump lost Iowa in 2016 to Ted Cruz and immediately screamed fraud. And now to set the stage for a possible loss or a win, but not a blowout. A mailer is being circulated in Iowa, already accusing Ron DeSantis of voter fraud. The Trump people are sending out a mailer accusing Ron DeSantis of stealing the Iowa caucus. This is based on something his wife said, where she invited, his wife isn't too smart, DeSantis's wife invited people from out of state to come caucus in Iowa. But this is identical to 2020. Two months before the 2020 presidential election, Trump had John Eastman and another lawyer named Cleta Mitchell, they were two of Trump's outside attorneys, they began preparing for litigation Immediately after the November election, two months before the election, they were preparing to file lawsuits charging voter fraud. If uh, It's like in Citizen Kane. Remember the two headlines are printed? Uh, John Foster Kane wins or fraud at the polls. Remember that? Well, if Trump wins, like John Foster Kane, the election is fair. If he loses, it's fraud. Mark Meadows, Trump's odious chief of staff, has told Jack Smith, and he's going to testify in the Washington, D.C. election interference trial, Mark Meadows told Jack Smith that on election night, when Trump went out and refused to concede, saying there's evidence of fraud, Trump had made those statements with zero evidence. When Trump 
was nominated for an Emmy for his role on The Apprentice, he lost. And he immediately accused the Television Academy of fraud. It's his knee-jerk reaction. It's like breathing to him, charging fraud. It's, he does it without even thinking. Now, supposedly, Nikki Haley might be in striking distance in New Hampshire. That's according to one poll. But here are the real clear New Hampshire polling averages. New Hampshire. Real clear polling averages show Trump with 46.3%, Haley with 24%. I don't know. I, I, I do know Trump is probably going to have this wrapped up uh, after Super Tuesday. Meanwhile, God bless him. Chris Christie is still out there. He's all in on New Hampshire. DeSantis is all in on Iowa. Chris Christie isn't in Iowa, uh, but he's all in in New Hampshire because he's the governor of New Jersey and, you know, he's not a favorite son in New Hampshire, but he's a Northeastern Republican. Because of the laws in New Hampshire, Christie is urging independents now to vote against Trump in the primary. So we're going to see tens of thousands of independents, even Democrats, voting in the Republican primary. So here's where it stands. There are two places Trump could conceivably lose, and only two places, Iowa and New Hampshire. That's it. We'll know if he's vulnerable. Well, we'll know after Iowa. If he wins Iowa, I, th- I, I that... It doesn't look like he's going down. If he wins, if Trump wins Iowa, New Hampshire, it's over. Only, he's got the nomination. The election isn't over. Only incumbents win Iowa and New Hampshire. If he wins Iowa and New Hampshire, you're looking at 2020. It's Trump running for re-election. Probably stronger. People forget. Uh... The Republicans learn nothing from January 6th, or they learn something that I don't even want to think about. My guess is Trump wins both. He wins Iowa, he wins New Hampshire, but because it's not a blowout, he'll declare fraud at the polls. He'll win both, but he'll still declare fraud at the polls. He's going to win and then insist he should have won by a much wider margin. But Ron DeSantis pulled something in Iowa and Chris Christie pulled something in New Hampshire. That's what my head is telling me. If you watch the Golden Globes, Joe Coy didn't bomb. The director bombed. Every time Joe Coy mentioned a celebrity, that idiot director cut to that celebrity. Celebrities don't laugh. Taylor Swift isn't there to be made fun of. She's there to grab an award and go home. But CBS and their infinite wisdom decided Joe Coy's monologue is all about seeing celebrities react to being made fun of. They couldn't wait to take the camera off Joe Coy. His jokes were fine, you know, for 
an award show, they were fine. He does not deserve what they're doing to him right now. I mean, he's on an apology tour because the director of the Golden Globes sucked. The director shot the Golden Globes, or at least Joe Coy's monologue, like it was a Comedy Central roast. Let's see the celebrity's reaction. No, we don't need to see the celebrity react. Celebrities, we know these celebrities are not there to be made fun of. They are at a Comedy Central roast. They're there to pick up an award and go home. Joe Coy did fine. The only thing he did wrong was he threw his writers under the bus. He panicked. You know, he said, uh, I didn't write these jokes. It was, that was bad. You know, and then he said, the jokes that are working are the ones I wrote. That was uh, pretty sweaty. Uh, so he, that's what he should be apologizing for. I'm telling you, anytime the director does a cutaway for an audience reaction, you're taking focus away from the host. Joe Coy did not bomb. The director did. Watch... Um, Watch Dave Chappelle. I've been watching Chappelle. I mean, I don't, you know, the the transgender stuff is unforgivable, but he is the best stand-up. I mean, he's brilliant. Every time he says something, you stay on Dave Chappelle. I don't want to look at the effing audience, like these close-ups of audience members reacting. You stay on the comic, not the audience. That director of the, the Golden Globes. I don't know who it is, but Joe, Joe Coy should sue him. This is the mop-up for January 9th, 2024. Did I get it right? It says here 2023. It's 2024. I'm David Feldman. Did I get that right? Yes, I'm David Feldman. Thank you for finding me. Please like this episode, please. Uh, what else? Please share it. Please subscribe to my channel and my newsletter. If you're enjoying this, please share it with your friends. That's the best way to help me is by sharing this with your friends. The Wall Street Journal reports that America's murder rate plummeted in 2023. Bad news for law and order Republicans who are still trying to convince voters that under Joe Biden, crime and murder are soaring. Please pay attention to this. This is ammunition you need. And it's from the Wall Street Journal, which is owned by Rupert Murdoch. The murder rate spiked in 2020 when Trump was president. Okay? According to the FBI, when Trump was president in 2020, the murder rate jumped 30% nationwide. You want to take on your crazy uncle? The murder rate under Donald Trump spiked 30% nationwide in 2020. And that doesn't include all the COVID patients Donald Trump killed. Now, before that, the murder rate had been going down, down, down for decades. Okay? Spikes 30% nationwide in 2020. This is the FBI. Then in 2021, Biden became president. And the murder rate only rose 4%. The first year Biden was in office and everybody's going, under Biden, the murder rate, it's not safe. What do we do? Under Trump in 2020, it goes up 
Biden goes up 4%. And then in 2022, Biden's second year in office, what happens? The murder rate goes down 4%. And it's been going down ever since. That's bad news for your crazy uncle. Fox won't tell you that. That's Rupert Murdoch's news station. But his Wall Street Journal is reporting that yesterday. In 2023, according to Rupert Murdoch's Wall Street Journal, murder dropped 15% in America's top 10 cities. You know, the top 10 cities, those are blue, you know, blue mayors, Democrats. There was a 20%, uh, this is really sad for Republicans, I'm sorry. There was a 20% drop in homicides in Philadelphia in 2023. I'm sorry. 16% drop in homicides in Los Angeles. Guess where the murder rate is still going up in 2023? Texas. Dallas reports a 15% increase in homicides for 2023. Austin. Murder rate is up 3%. But Republicans, because they can only talk about what they see right in front of them, they go, look what's happening in Texas. Under Joe Biden, the murder rate is going up, 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 up. Look what's happening in Texas. It's not safe in Texas. No, you idiots. Under Joe Biden, the murder rate is going down, down, down. Uh, It's going down, down, down. It's going up, up, up in Texas but it's going down, down, down in the rest of America. Texas, in your little laboratory of democracy, it's going up, 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 because the number of Texas douchebags carrying weapons in your state is going up, up, up. Where there are lax gun laws, more people die. I went over this, I think, the pre, not last show, but the show before that. Incontrovertible evidence. Where there are lax gun laws, more people die. And on that show, I addressed Chicago. Illinois still has a lower gun homicide rate than Florida, has a lower, lower gun homicides than Texas and Florida. Okay. Lauren Boebert, Republican Lauren Boebert and her ex-husband have had another run-in with the police. This time, it's serious. This time, Jason Boebert called the police to report he is the victim of domestic violence, claiming the Colorado Congresswoman punched him several times in the face while they were dining Saturday night at Miner's Claim Restaurant in Silt, Colorado. Police Chief Mike Kite spoke with the Washington Post yesterday and said he is reviewing surveillance video and the incident is being investigated. Bobert denies she attacked her ex-husband. Although, you know, I saw that surveillance video of her attending a performance of Beetlejuice last year with her then-boyfriend, I have to say, 
she can be pretty good with her hands. Bobert issued a statement yesterday saying the accusations are false and they make her glad she decided to switch congressional districts because she says there's just too much baggage in the one she currently represents. If you recall, last week Bobert said she would run for re-election, but in Colorado's 4th Congressional District, that's a seat being vacated by Republican Ken Buck, who announced his retirement late last year. Bobert won her old district in 2022 by fewer than 600 votes, and it was doubtful she could win it again. Aspen City Councilman Democrat Adam Frisch, who came so close to winning last time, is running again for that seat. And that seat is now considered a toss-up, especially since Frisch had been, has been lavished with close to $9 million in donations, especially from out-of-state contributors who want Bobert gone. She knows she can't win in the 4th District, so she's running in the 3rd. And there's... No, wait a second. Is it the 4th? I think she's in the... She represents... I, I apologize. I think she represents the 4th District and Ken Buck represents the 3rd. Let me know in the comments. I think she's running now in the 3rd Congressional District. And there's no guarantee that she'll get the nomination. Uh, So far, there are at least 12 other Republicans who are running to replace Ken Buck. And Ken Buck is no fan of Lauren Boebert. Ken Buck, uh, he, along with Chip Roy, were the only members of the Freedom Caucus not to certify, uh, who, who certified the election for Joe Biden. Uh, this is bad. This is uh, this uh, police investigation, I think, is the end of Lauren Boebert. I just don't see how she can win the primary going up against 12 other Republicans, respectable conservatives. There's no such thing, but I just don't see how she wins Ken Buck's district, the nomination. Ryan Biller in Politico wrote a profile on Bobert before this new domestic violence story broke. And in that article, he reminds us that during her two terms in office, Bobert fought mask and vaccine mandates in and out of Congress. The Ethics Committee under Pelosi fined her $500 for refusing to wear a mask. She insisted on carrying her sidearm inside the Capitol, refused to go through the metal detectors, got into it, with the Capitol Police. She heckled President Biden during his State of the Union. On January 6, 2021, she tweeted, Today is 1776. And then during the insurrection, tweeted out Nancy Pelosi's whereabouts. Saturday night's incident was not the first time Colorado police had to be called on the Boberts. You know, voters take this seriously, especially Republicans. If you're trying to endear yourself to Republicans as a carpetbagger in a new congressional district, 
This is bad. Uh, last year, police had to perform a welfare check on one of Bobert's sons after he called 911 saying his dad was, quote, throwing him around the place. Neighbors have called the police several times on Bobert's husband for his reckless speeding, his dogs, his dangerous dogs. And Jason Bobert ended up doing time in jail after exposing himself to two underage girls while he was on a bowling date with Lauren Bobert. As a congresswoman, and there have been other police incidents, traffic incidents, that her promoting underage drinking and telling underage drinkers to run away from the cops. And she was arrested for trying to stop the police from arresting underage drinkers. As a congresswoman, Lauren Boebert has spoken openly against same-sex marriage. She called America a Christian nation. She taunts Muslim members of Congress, calling them terrorists. She is adamantly pro-life, became a grandmother last year at the tender age of 36 when her teenage son impregnated his high school girlfriend, repeating Boebert's own history of being forced to drop out of high school after she became pregnant. Bobert dropped out of high school. She eventually got her GED, but she never went on to college. And despite several arrests, she somehow won the Republican nomination for Colorado's, I believe, it's either the third or the fourth congressional district uh, in 2020. I'm sorry. If you live in Colorado, I apologize. She beat out the Republican incumbent, Congressman Scott Tipton, who pretty much shared Boebert's views, especially on immigrants and Donald Trump. So how did someone like Boebert rise truly out of nowhere to unseat a five-term Republican incumbent? Someone... Republicans in Colorado considered a respectable conservative. Even Donald Trump, who was president at the time, endorsed Scott Tipton, not Boebert. How did she come out of nowhere? Guns. Guns, guns, guns. She put guns on the ballot. She ran as a gun rights activist in a heavily rural district that wasn't just heavily Republican, it's a district that's heavily armed in a state that is blue and getting increasingly blue, reliably blue. We're talking about Colorado, whose Supreme Court just took Trump's name off the ballot citing Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. But out where Boebert lives, the voters love guns, Jesus, and the flag, just not each other. So guns became Boebert's calling card in 2020, and nobody saw it coming, not Trump, nobody in the GOP. They underestimated how low you can scrape from the bottom of the barrel to win over 
Republican voters. The voters in her district love guns. At the time of her election, she and her ex-husband owned a restaurant in Rifle, Colorado. There's a city in Colorado named Rifle. In Rifle, Colorado, she and her now ex-husband opened a restaurant called Shooters. It's a play on Hooters, but instead of celebrating the waitress's busts, the restaurant celebrated the guns that the waitresses were carrying. Shooters, get it? Shooters. It's now defunct after several public health safety violations that included food poisoning from some sliders that caused severe diarrhea, making me wonder if guns were why the restaurant was called Shooters. Yeah, as a restaurant owner, the Boberts did not care too much about food safety. And that's the thing about people who don't want strict gun laws. They don't want any laws. If a restaurant makes you sick, let the market decide by giving everyone food poisoning. That's what they say. Let the mar- That's what Milton Friedman literally said. You don't need food inspectors. People get sick. They stop coming back to your restaurant. Like I said, Trump had endorsed the incumbent, not Boebert. Even he didn't know what he had unleashed. This was 2020, and uh, he had no idea what had been unleashed in the extremely red rural districts where an evolutionary dead-ender like Lauren Boebert could sidle up to Christian nationalists, QAnon supporters, the three percenters, while at the same time thanking God for the Proud Boys. That's who supported her. That's who she made her alliances with. Christian nationalists, QAnon, three percenters, and the Proud Boys. Trump was running for re-election 2020. The gloves were off. And in Colorado, he had no idea how off they were. Uh, this is the Repu- this is the Republican Party. Now, I say she's written her political obituary. She's running for Ken Buck's seat. Ken Buck is a res- if you're a Republican. He is a respectable Republican. I'm writing her p- political obituary this morning. If she gets the if she gets the nomination for Ken Buck's seat, it's a we're looking at a wave election in 2024, a bad wave. Pay attention to the primaries. I think they're in June for Ken Buck's seat. When Boebert said last week she was switching districts to run for Ken Buck's seat, Speaker Mike Johnson endorsed her. He has no choice. He needs her right now. He needs her right now. So he endorsed her. He has to. Johnson currently has a two-seat majority in the House. 
Steve Scalise is away getting stem cell treatment for his cancer. Kevin McCarthy, the former speaker, quit Congress altogether. George Santos was thrown out, and Ohio Congressman Republican Bill Johnson is out the door early. Two seats. If Boebert is arrested, Colorado police are looking into this, and from what I've been told and what I've read, this is pretty bad. Uh, If she's unable to return to Washington, D.C. because of these legal problems with her husband, if the surveillance video is as bad as her husband says and other people on the ground in silt say it is, and that she she has to step aside, that will leave Speaker Mike Johnson with a one-vote majority in the House just as the possibility of a government shutdown looms over Washington, D.C. Remember, the first ladder of the continuing resolution expires on January 19th, where 20% of the government would no longer be funded, and then the rest of the government would shut down on February 2nd, when the continuing resolution's second ladder expires. And Mike Johnson is flailing and failing to keep his caucus in line. All it takes now is one vote, right, to vacate the chair or two votes for him to lose the speakership. Over the weekend, an agreement between Mike Johnson in the House and Chuck Schumer, the Democratic Senate Majority Leader, was reached uh, regarding a top line for discretionary spending. The budget, if you remember, is divided into three buckets. I promise this will be 10 seconds. Those buckets are, okay, the budget is divided into three buckets. Those buckets are interest on the debt, that's 8% of the budget. Then there's mandatory spending, that's spending that's non-negotiable, like Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. That's 66% of the budget. And then there's discretionary spending. Discretionary spending makes up 26% of the entire budget, and that's what we're talking about. That's what the fight is over. They're fighting over 26% of the federal budget. Uh, discretionary spending. And that is split between the military and non-military. Now, military last year was 45% of discretionary spending. Non-military was 55% of discretionary spending. The top-line agreement that you've been hearing about is about discretionary spending. This is what the big fight is over. This is what the big budget battle is over. Schumer and Johnson agreed that $1.66 trillion would be the number for discretionary spending. The budget is several trillion dollars, but discretionary spending is what they're fighting over, and that's $1.66 trillion. They've agreed that that's the number for discretionary spending, with $772 billion going towards non-military spending, and $886 billion going towards military spending. So I 
looked into this. It doesn't make sense because for the 2024 budget, we're spending more on the military than we are on non-military, or at least that's the agreement. Last year, we spent 45% on military and 55% on non-military. But the deal, uh, maybe I'm wrong here, but it looks like the deal now is to spend more on the military than on non-military. I hope I'm wrong. And so the $1.66 trillion top line number will be divided into the 12 appropriations bills that make up the 2024 budget, which should have been passed in October of 2023. So that's why we have continuing resolutions. Now, over the weekend, everyone thought a shutdown might have been averted. But then Monday, the hard right Freedom Caucus announced they hate the deal, they hate Mike Johnson, and as of now, what happens is anybody's guess. Before I leave you, I have a call to action. I'm going to give you Mike Johnson's phone number and his address. Everybody can be redeemed. Everybody can be redeemed. Everybody can be forgiven. I'll give you his address and his phone number in a second. I'm going to ask you for a favor. Punchbowl and Axios are reporting the possibility that the child tax credit expansion may be restored. There are two committees to watch on this. There's the Appropriations Committee. They're the ones who finalize the budget. The 12 budget bills come out of appropriations. Then there's the Ways and Means Committee, which is in charge of writing the tax code. Ways and Means collects the taxes, and the Appropriations Committee spends it. Now, Punchbowl and Axios are reporting that a deal has been struck between House Ways and Means Committee Chair Jason Smith, he's a Republican, I believe from Missouri. I believe he's from Missouri. Jason Smith, the the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, has made a deal with Senate Finance Committee Chair Ron Wyden, he's a Democrat from Oregon, in which the child tax credit expansion would be renewed retroactively for 2023. Meaning, when people who qualify file their taxes, they would receive a huge chunk of cash in the mail. Now, if this actually happens, I will cry. It would make me so happy. And if Mike Johnson can do this, uh, I will convert to Christianity. I will become an evangelical Christian. If he does this, uh, this everybody can be redeemed. Now, in exchange for bringing back the child tax credit expansion, Democrats have agreed to provide big business with additional tax credits on things like research and development or interest on corporate debt, right? So this is the split between the Democrats and the Republicans. The Democrats are saying, we want to expand the child tax credit, 
And the party that calls itself Christian says, well, if you're going to do that, you have to expand uh, tax credits for the rich, for the corporations. Okay. I can live with that. Punchbowl reported late last night that the House Rules Committee, that there, there is no appetite for expanding the child tax credit in the House Rules Committee, which means Mike Johnson, if he's the Christian he says he is, he would have to then get an up or down vote on expanding the child tax credit by suspending the rules. And that requires a two-thirds majority in the House of Representatives. That's how the continuing resolution was passed and through a suspension of the rules. That means Democrats and Republicans would have to vote for this because when you suspend the rules, you need a two-thirds majority in the House. Now look, the child tax credit, I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to give you his phone number and his address. The child tax credit was expanded temporarily under Biden and the number of children living in poverty here in America was cut in half. Wasn't good enough. The way we measure poverty, I don't want to get into how we measure poverty and the yardsticks. But the number of children living in poverty was cut in half in 2021. But then Republicans let the expansion of the child tax credit lapse at the end of 2021, and what we saw was child poverty doubling. Now, the results are undeniable. Child tax credit is... uh, I don't want to call it welfare. I don't know what you would call it. It's if you file your taxes and you prove that you have children, uh, you can get, right now, I think it's $2,000 a year. But under Biden, they expanded it. And I don't know what the number is, but it was a lot. I think it was like 600 a month for each kid for some people. The results are undeniable. I, I may not have these numbers right, but I do think for some Americans, the child tax credit came out to $600 a month for each child, I think. Uh, I, I'm imprecise here. But when you expand child tax credits, the results are in. Children have more to eat. They have clothes to wear places to live, and working moms don't have to choose between insulin, food, or rent. Their parents, despite what the odious Democratic Senator Joe Manchin insists, their parents don't end up spending that money on drugs. I talked about this earlier. Joe Manchin fought the child tax credit expansion He said, I know my constituents. They're only going to spend that money on drugs. I want you to do me a favor. 
if this deal somehow comes to pass, it would make a significant change in people's life. Now, I know you're always asked to give to this charity or that charity. Expanding the child tax credit will do more than any charity you donate to. And it's not going to cost you any more money. In fact, you may end up making money. This is what good government does. We, this is, it, it's better for the government to distribute this money than it is for a 501c3. The child tax credit needs to be expanded. So I'm going to ask you for a favor. Speaker Johnson's phone number is 202-225-2777. 202-225-2777. Leave a message. Be polite. Don't be an a-hole. Just say, I'm calling. I'm asking Speaker Johnson to make sure that the child tax credit is expanded. Please expand the child tax credit. Call the number 202-225-2777. Excuse me. And do it. Just leave a message. More importantly, send a postcard. Don't send a letter. Send a postcard. Never send a letter. Send a postcard. They read postcards. This is 2024. They're not opening letters. they, They open letters with hazmat suits. Send a postcard. His address is Speaker Mike Johnson, 568 Cannon House Office Building, Washington, D.C., 20515. It's Speaker Mike Johnson, 568 Cannon, C-A-N-N-O-N, House Office Building, Washington, D.C., 20515. His phone number is 202-225-2777. Politely request that he makes this happen. Suspend the rules. Go, you know, pass this under suspension with, uh, I think it's two-thirds of the House then has to pass it. The Democrats would be on board. Pass the child credit expansion. Expand the child tax credit. This is better than giving to charity. Nobody in the government makes $800,000 a year. Last time I checked, the head of the United Way, the head of the Red Cross, you know, they're closing in on a million a year. Go look at what the Bill Gates Foundation pays its leaders and with the administrative costs. I believe in government. I believe in good government. This is the most efficient way to get money to our children through the, the through expanding the child tax credit. So if you want to do me a favor, 
please contact Mike Johnson and, of course, Chuck Schumer and Hakeem Jeffries. But if Mike Johnson is the Christian he says he is, the babies, right? I'm David Feldman reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak. Thank you so much for listening to me. If you enjoyed any of this, please write and call Mike Johnson. Please like this so I remain in your feed. That's the best way to make sure that I'm uh, in your feed is by liking this episode. If you can subscribe to my channel, I would appreciate it. Please subscribe to my newsletter. Leave comments. I read all your comments. I know I make mistakes. I have to issue some corrections. I'll get to them. Thank you for correcting me. I know I made a couple of mistakes. I, I, I have no idea now. I, I think she represented the 4th Congressional District. I think. And she's moving into the 3rd Congressional District. I think. And... Uh, you know, she's really bad, Lauren Boebert. I, I like the fact, here's what I like about Lauren Boebert. I like the fact that she didn't go to college. I like the fact that she needs her congressional salary. I like the fact that, that she was a single mom who dropped out of high school and took a job at McDonald's. I like the fact that, you know, she was a pipe fitter. She knows what it's like to actually work for a living, and I respect that. I wish we had more members of Congress with her background. And, you know, she's an idiot, but she's no fool. She's no fool. Well, I watch her speak on the House floor. She's a quick study. She teaches uh, her staff to, to fill her with information, and she gets her talking points down. She familiarizes herself with the congressional rules. She knows which ones to follow and which ones to violate. Uh, you know, I've never taken her seriously. Uh, I think she's a danger to the community. I, I, I feel sorry for people who live in rural Colorado and are surrounded by people who either like Lauren Boebert, or are like Lauren Boebert, uh, you know, she, in many ways, she's like Ronald Reagan or George Bush. She knows enough to look like she knows what she's talking about. Uh, so, you know, we, we, she and I come from very different backgrounds. Uh, and she made choices. She gravitates towards garbage. That was her, you know, we make choices in life. She has always gravitated towards garbage. She married garbage. And when you surround yourself with garbage, you become garbage. We soak in what's around us. And, and after you soak in the garbage, you become garbage. So, anyway. I will see everybody tomorrow. Thank you to the mods. Thank you, Bob, if you're here. It's late. Thank you. I'll see everybody tomorrow. Oh, this is an audio podcast, so subscribe to it as well.